Now we come back to Isaiah, and the prophet Isaiah begins to teach the people concerning the foundation of their lives, what they should have been building their trust and their hope and their lives upon. Isaiah, throughout this prophecy, has been decrying how they are putting their trust in all the wrong people and in all the wrong things. And chapter 28 pulls that out yet again, observing how misplaced their hope and trust has been in the things of the world rather than in the things of God. Most notably, he's going to observe two particular aspects, how they've trusted in other nations to be able to... To, uh, save them from coming disaster and coming judgment uh, as these uh, nations like uh, like Syria and like Israel have come against Judah and trying to overthrow them. Judah has not trusted in God, but instead has trusted in worldly nations. Further, we're going to notice in Isaiah that he's been pointing out the their selfish sins, that they're taking the blessings of God and, and using them on themselves rather than receiving seeing these things as a gift of God and using those things properly. Uh, We'll look at some of the verses of chapter 28. We won't be able to read it all. It's a pretty lengthy scene here, but let's start with just the first four verses to just get a feel of uh, what Isaiah is doing. First, he points to Israel, the northern nation. Chapter 28, verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, its destroying tempests, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden under foot and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley will be like the first ripe fig from the summer when someone sees it he swallows it as soon as it is his hand <laughs> so there's our, our beginning picture as Isaiah says Israel your crown is in your own wealth it's in your own glory your own lives he calls them a bunch of drunkards who are drinking with wine there and overcome with that wine. He says, your glory, your proud crown that you have in yourself. He says, God is going to overthrow it. In fact, in such a graphic way, he says, "It'll you will be like a fig when it first blossoms and someone comes up, grabs it, throws it down his throat and says, well, that was delicious. That's how easy it's going to be as the nation is going to come up against you because you haven't put your trust in God. The contrast is given there in verse 5. In that day, remember that phrase in that day is this messianic view. There's going to be a day to come when the Messiah comes, his kingdom comes, and the people of God, here's what they're going to look like. So verse 5, in that day, the Lord of hosts will be the glo- will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and the spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Beautiful picture here. Rather than putting their crown upon their alcohol or in themselves or their own desires and their own lusts, he says, in that day, here's what my people are going to look like. 
Their joy and their crown are going to be in the Lord. That is where they're going to find their pride. That's where they're going to take their glory. That's where they're going to find their value. Verse 5 says, A diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. And so here is a great picture of God's people should find their joy in God. They should find their crown and their glory in God. Not in what they have. Not in what they do. Not in all of their physical or material blessings. Not in the things that they accomplish. All of their joy, their glory, their crown, their pride, their value. All of that is wrapped up in the Lord. In fact, verse 6 even amplifies that. Even their decisions are going to be based on the Lord. Judgments that are passed. Decisions that are made. They will only be made based upon the justice and righteousness of God. Their strength will be found in the Lord at the end of verse 6. So you're getting this full picture of the people of God. They will turn to God alone to find their joy. That will be where they will look for their satisfaction. This is where they will find their needs and their desires to be filled. Rather than what Israel is doing in looking to the nations and in looking to the things of this world to be able to sustain them. And the reason why I think that is really neat for two points. One is notice that he's speaking in that day. There's going to be a new group of people, a remnant, that are going to belong to Him who are going to do that. That is what the people of God are supposed to look like. They trust in God. Their joy is in God. They seek after God. They find their value and hope in God. And that is exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44 in this very, very short parable. Very simple parable, but notice the critical concepts that are laid out in this parable. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And there are two things that Jesus says in such a short, simple parable that parallel what Isaiah is picturing. First is that they're going to see Jesus and they're going to see his kingdom as a treasure. They're going to recognize who this is. They're going to see God as their joy, as their crowning jewel. And they are going to recognize Him for who He is, the treasure that He is, so much so that they recognize the treasure that the second line is, in joy, they give up everything that they have to follow Him. And I can't tell you how many times I've missed the in joy part. We talk about giving up all that we have, sacrificing all for the kingdom of God, taking up the cross and following Him, and miss the idea of you do it with joy and happiness. It is what it is our desire because we see Him as the glorious treasure that He is. We recognize the high value that He is, and we won't trade it for anything. It would be like if you came across a treasure, you had a million dollars, and I said, well, I'll, I'll trade you my 2002 Xterra for your million dollar treasure. And you'd say, well, that's ridiculous. That, that's a, an obvious no-brainer. I would never trade something so valuable for something so obviously wasteful and silly and poor and useless like a car. 
but how often we trade the high precious value of Christ and His kingdom, this grand treasure that we have. And not only do we not with joy give up everything we we have, sometimes we don't give up everything we have even begrudgingly. And here is this picture that Isaiah is presenting. The first four verses, Israel's crown is in their wine. In that day, my people, the Lord will be their crown. They will see God as as an amazing beauty. And they will not trade him for anything. And they will follow him because he is the treasure and he is of great value. Now, Isaiah does that. And you can imagine, remember, Isaiah is not a prophet to the northern nation, Israel. He's a prophet to the southern nation, Judah. And so he takes a shot at the northern nation and says, look at their sins. Look how selfish they are. They're consumed and overcome with wine. Look how they do not treasure God the way they ought to treasure him. And then you come to verse seven. And he says, these also reel with wine. He now turns to his own people in Judah and Jerusalem and says, you're not any different. You too are in the same boat as the northern nation and indulging in the sins of the flesh as well. In fact, a notice as verse seven describes, they reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed. Swallowed by wine, they stagger with strong drink, they reel in vision, they stumble in in giving judgment. Here is this picture of just indulging in the flesh. And verse 8 has to be one of the most graphic images, top 10 graphic images of the Bible. Love it. For all their tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. That is awesome. (laughs) Whoa. You guys are such a mess. You're so steeped in your sins. You're so caught up in your alcohol and living for your life and living for today. He says, there's no room for anything else as you're just vomiting in all of your drunkenness. Indulging in the flesh. What the people are doing is what our world tells us to do. That you need to live for yourself. Enjoy every moment. Get all you can out of this life. Live for today. It's all about trying to get whatever you can out of this life. Now, all of your desires need to be fulfilled. And here is Isaiah looking at that and going, that's not going to work out well for you. Look at these two nations who are indulging in the flesh. And he now is going to lay out the judgments that are going to come across to them. But before he lays out the condemnation, notice how in verses 9 and 10, he's going to identify the mockery that is going on against Isaiah. The people of Judah are not fans of the preaching of Isaiah. And they offer up two mockeries that they give to him. Verse 9 is the first one. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? To those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. Do you get what he just did right there? They're so full of worldliness that they begin to mock Isaiah and their first charge against him, their mocking is, your message is too simple. Hey, Isaiah. 
Isaiah, who are you preaching to? A bunch of infants who've been nursing? Your message is too plain, too boring, too simple, too basic. We're not interested in hearing it. Who are you going to teach? Are you going to explain something useful to us? We know the Scriptures, and your message is too boring. Your message is too plain. That's the first charge laid against them. And I think that is such an interesting criticism that is laid against Isaiah, because if you think about what Isaiah has been preaching up to this point, in a sense, his message has been pretty simple, right? You need to trust God. That's been kind of the consistent message throughout this so far. You're trusting in all the wrong things. You're trusting in the world. Where is your trust in God? God has blessed you. God has provided for you and made you a nation. Where is your love for God? Where is your trust in Him? That's what Isaiah 5 was about, that image of that that vineyard. Here is God who had set you up and made you this beautiful vineyard. And you bore this lousy, awful fruit. Trust in God. What has God done to cause you to turn away from Him? And notice we have now in verse 9 this statement by the people of, well, we don't want to hear something that easy. We want something bigger and better. Who are you talking to, Isaiah? You're speaking to the people who want simple, basic things, and we will not hear that. And I think it is a useful warning and reminder to us to take care that we don't treat the Bible that way. and We don't become people who, like these or like the Athenians, are always looking for something new. We want to hear something different, something special, something unusual. And we don't want to hear just, what does the Bible have? to say what does the word of God proclaim we want something off the wall today we kind of have that in our religious quote unquote world today of you know simple basic things like you know devote yourself to God that's a really boring we need something way more interesting than that and the, the, the keys to life can't be submit to the Lord your God with all of your heart we need something more complex submitting to the Lord doesn't sell books it doesn't make movies it doesn't make money We need something different. We need something unusual. And so this is what they're saying to Isaiah is your message is too simple. The second criticism is in verse 10. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now this is awesome. And what he does is the people are also criticizing the way Isaiah teaches them. And it's hard to get exactly to translate into English what he's doing here. And so I'm going to show you the Hebrew just so you can see the mockery of what the people are saying. Here's what they're they're quoting. They're saying... Sav la sav, sav la sav, quav la kav, kav la kav. In our language, that would be blah, 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 Isaiah. We are tired of hearing you preach word by word, line by line, verse by verse, blah, blah, blah. That's all you do, Isaiah, is you just give us the rules and the laws and the words and the verses. And we don't want to hear it anymore. When you preach like that, we just hear blah, 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 blah. That's what they're criticizing Isaiah for saying. And I think that is a fascinating criticism because it's showing that they have absolutely no desire for the Word of God. They don't want to hear the law. They don't want to hear Isaiah preach line by line and word by word and phrase by phrase and paragraph by paragraph. They don't want rule by rule. 
They don't want to hear any of of those things. They just don't want to listen to the word of God. They have no taste for it. And so they say, you keep preaching word by word from the word of God. And all we hear is blah, blah, blah. We don't want any part of that because that's all you say. We may be shocked by this, but staggeringly enough, just as in that day, so also today, many don't want to hear the word of God. They don't want to hear the Bible opened up and see here's what God has to say and move through word by word, line by line, phrase by phrase and page by page. Many people don't want that. Give us cute, entertaining stories. Give us some fun stuff. Let's just make this place a movie screen. Let's just make it fun. And I want you to see that Isaiah is dealing with the very same criticism. That they don't want to hear the word of God. And it's a useful reminder for us, and it should catch our ears as well, is if we find studying the Bible, if we find studying a book of the Bible, and reading from it, and listening to it, and teaching from it to be born, to be blah, 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 blah. We have a serious heart problem. That's what's going on here. Here's Isaiah saying, I'm just teaching you the word of God. And they're going, man, we don't want to hear any more of it. Will you stop? And if we find the word of God boring, if we don't want to hear what God has to say and to move through His precious Word and read word by word and verse by verse and book by book, if it's just blah, 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 there's a great warning that our hearts are in serious jeopardy before God. This is exactly what Isaiah is dealing with. And and listen to the condemnation that God now drops upon them in verse 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Well, you don't like how Isaiah is preaching to you. You don't like how he gives you word by word by word from the very words of God. Notice that God doesn't say, let me give you a different way and I'll teach you a different way. No, he says, because you reject hearing the word of God, I'm going to make you listen to the word of God in a foreign language. Implication. You're going to be taken off your land. You're going to go into exile. You're going to hear the word of God word by word, line by line, verse by verse in a foreign language instead and see how you like it that way. That's what he just gave him right there. God does not take our immaturity toward the word of God lightly. He does not sit back and go, well, I'm sure sorry that you don't like the way that Isaiah was presenting the word of God. Let's see if we can get a different prophet in here and do a little better. Maybe he can snazz it up a bit. He says, you don't like the word of God. You don't want to read sentence by sentence. You don't want to read and hear what God has to say. I think it is fascinating that he turns and says, well, I'll just make you keep listening to it, but you won't listen to it in my blessed land. You will enjoy my, my blessings and privileges and promises. I'll send you away into exile and you'll hear my word preached to you in a foreign language instead. Let me note real quick before we move on. You might recognize that verse. That verse is quoted in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. And that is a really interesting place to quote it. If you remember over in 1 Corinthians 14, you have the problems of the Corinthians who think that the miraculous spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, foreign languages, is the pinnacle of miraculous gifts. And they are saying, we don't care about the other ones. The the most to be desired is to be able to speak in these foreign languages. 
And Paul quotes that because he's using the same idea and saying just as here in these days, these people disdain the plain reading of the word of God. So the days of the Corinthians, they're also disdaining the plain word of God. They want it in foreign languages. They want to be able to speak in tongues. And guess what? He says, when you speak in tongues, what is it like to the unbeliever? Blah, 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 blah. They don't know what you're saying. And so he condemns them for it. And so he uses the frame of Isaiah and pulls it into 1 Corinthians and says, you don't enjoy prophecy. You don't enjoy the word of God. You think tongue speaking is the utmost of all things. And you don't even understand that those who don't speak that language are just hearing gibberish and blah, blah, blah. And so Isaiah uses it the same way here. How can you have a disdain for the plain teaching of God? How can you not want to study the word of God and hear what God has to say and move through his words and verses and laws and rules and books and see everything that he has? For when we refuse to do that, when we show a disdain for that, God says, I will not accept that. Now, notice verse 12, because this is even more shocking. So, for verse 11, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, verse 12, this is rest. Give rest to the weary and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. Here's what's shocking. The message that they are saying is blah, 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 is the message of rest. God has come to you by grace and said, I'm trying to give you rest. I'm trying to have you enter into my glorious rest. And you are going to say that my words and my teaching of grace and love and forgiveness is blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to give you rest. And he says, they would not listen. And so verse 13, and the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. I love what God says here. You find God's message boring. I'm not going to change the message. You have rejected my message of grace. In verse 13, he says, so here's what the word of the Lord will be to them. Sov, lasov, sov, lasov, quav, lakov, quav, lakov. Fine. I'm not changing it one moment. I'm not changing my words one bit. I'm still going to give you law and law and precept upon precept and rule after rule and sentence upon sentence and line by line. God comes along and says, I'm not changing the message for you. I'm not going to alter it to make it more palatable for you. This is the word of the Lord. And we are to develop our taste for the word of God, not try to change the word of God to make it more desirable to us. And notice that Isaiah doesn't say, well, God has told me to do it differently for you. No, God comes along and says, because you don't like this line by line, I'm taking you off the land. You're going to hear it again in the foreign language. And it's still going to be line by line, precept and precept, law upon law. God will judge us for how we receive his word. And so it's a great warning to us to always have our hearts open to the word of God. 
And to be always ready to receive what God has to say. And to have a desire to find out, you know, what is 2 Corinthians all about? What is the book of Numbers all about? What is the book of Habakkuk about? What is Ecclesiastes all about? To want to know what God has to say. To desire to understand these letters and prophecies and narratives and stories and gospels. They are all put together in such a beautiful way. And for us to look at them with great disdain and say, yeah, prophets are boring or laws are boring or the gospel is not so interesting. Heard it a thousand times. Too basic, too plain, too boring. Give us some weird stuff. Give us some difficult stuff. God hates that. And we should enjoy going through something as simple as the book of Acts. Yeah, we've gone through Acts a lot. Yep, the story of the early church. Nobody should go, oh, the book of Acts. I've done that 140,000 times. There's things to learn there. It is the word of God and is of great value to us. And just as much as we shouldn't look at the book of Leviticus and go, well, boy, that's a big wad of paper there that I just don't want to look into. Everything about God's word is precious. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable to be able to make us complete the man of God that he wants us to be. And so what rules our life? What is the foundation of our life? Is it other things or is it the word of God? These people rejected the word of God. And so often that can still be the case today. Notice now what he says. Here's, here's the thing that I find fascinating. Now the description of judgment. Verse 14. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers. Notice the interest. They don't want to hear the word of the Lord. Alright, hear the word of the Lord, you mockers and scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. I love the mockery that is brought about here as Isaiah says, here's what you've done. By trusting in the nations for your uh, protection and your safety and not putting your trust in God alone. He says, what you have done is you have signed a security or a covenant of death. What you have done is you have basically written your death warrant. You are going to die because of that. If you had trusted in God, God would have saved you. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 7 to King Ahaz. Trust me and I will deliver you. You don't need to worry about those two smoldering firebrands. I'm going to deliver you. Ahaz goes, no, no. I'm not going to trust in the Lord. I've got these things in the world I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust in the nations. I'm going to trust in myself. I'm going to trust in my own abilities, my own uh, power to make alliances. And so God says, what you've done is you've sealed your fate. And it reminds us that when we trust in anything outside of the Lord, we are then putting ourselves to death. We are signing our own death ward and making our own covenant of death. To put our lives in the hands of anything else or anyone else but God is our doom. When we trust in this world, when we trust in the ways of the world, when we put our hope and our value and our trust in anything but God, we're doomed. We're utterly doomed. And Isaiah says, you should have trusted in God, for now your doom is upon you. You have signed the covenant of death, and now judgment is worthy to you. And you would think verse 16 
in my view, would be this fiery statement of wrath. You have signed a covenant of death. It is over for you when the overwhelming whip passes through you because you have made lies your refuge. You have trusted in things that are false, these things that are not truly able to deliver you. You've rejected your God. Notice what God says He's going to do. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. That's amazing. So he says, here's what you've done. You've put your trust in the wrong place. You haven't trusted in God. So here is what God is going to do. He's going to save you from yourself. Is what he's going to do. You expect the fury to open up in verse 16. Because you haven't trusted in me, here I'm just going to bring down wrath upon you. And notice what he says. He says, because you haven't trusted in me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay a foundation, a precious stone. And whoever truly believes in that stone will not act out of panic, will not act out of haste, but will truly rely upon it. So what Isaiah is saying as the voice of God is rather than dying for not trusting in the Lord, which is what should have happened. They should be exterminated and have the full wrath of God against them for not trusting in the Lord. God says, here's what I will do. He says in verse 18, I'm going to annul the covenant of death that you've made. And instead, I'm going to offer you a new foundation a true foundation where you can find true rest. And I love the imagery of, uh, let's see, verse 20. The bed is too short to stretch oneself out and the covering is too narrow to wrap oneself. When we try to trust in anything else in this world, it is like having a bed too short or having a blanket that's too narrow. It's not rest. It's not worth worth trusting in. And here's God saying, I'm trying to give you the true foundation. I'm trying to give you true rest. And though you reject me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay a new foundation and my people are going to put their trust in me. They're going to put their trust in this new foundation, this new stone. They will not be put to shame and they will believe and not be put to panic. They will put their trust in God. And now notice how that all plays out. Jump out to verse 24 now. As he says, tries to bring them this message of hope fully. Verse 24, does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with the rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, does he thresh it forever? When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. 
He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Consider the finale of how Isaiah is bringing this thought to an end. As he simply asks the question and gets them to comprehend, the the farmer does not keep plowing and plowing and plowing and plowing. No farmer does that. Eventually, the farmer stops and plants. You don't just simply plow and plow and plow. You don't continue to ruin and ruin and ruin the ground and turn it over and turn it over. There is a purpose to the plowing. There is thoughtful threshing that is going on as you do go through this. There, the reason there is plowing done is to be able to bring forth a crop. And so here's Isaiah's message. Yes, judgment is coming. Because you have not trusted in me. You're going to be plowed, if you will, to use the imagery. But there's a purpose behind it. It's to bring about a great fruit out of you. This judgment is coming so that you will become the people of God that you are supposed to be. You will become what God has called you to be. You will not be plowed over forever. In fact, this work is being done so that you can be delivered by God. And that's what verse 29 is getting at. This is the reason why the righteous do not panic. Because it comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. God is calculated in his works. He is purposeful in his activities. And so God's foundation is the place that we are to put all of our hope. We put our trust in him. We don't put our trust in the things of the world to get us through when things seem to fall apart. We recognize God to be the foundation, the only one to trust, the only place where there is rest. To turn anywhere else is the covenant of death. I want you to recognize as we conclude here, this is exactly what Peter said. He quotes Isaiah and brings it forward in chapter 2 and verse 4. He says, as you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So speaking of coming to Jesus, the living stone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. And here's the quote from Isaiah. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You see the message that now the Apostle Peter comes along and he takes the message of Isaiah and says, God said he was going to lay a new foundation, a new place for people to put their trust, that they had brought about the covenant of death because they're putting their trust in all the wrong things and all the wrong people. And so God's answer to that false uh, idolatry and false trust is he would put in a new foundation. And guess who the foundation is? Jesus. Jesus is going to come. He will be the foundation. And all who put their trust in Him, I love the language of Isaiah, they're not going to panic. They're not going to act out of haste. They will not be put to shame, as the Septuagint has it, as Peter quotes it. They will trust in God alone, recognizing that when we put our trust in anything else but Jesus, we're signing our death warrant. 
We're making a covenant of death. It is not going to work out for us in the slightest. We will be worthy of the wrath that is due us. But God has come in and said, I will annul that wrath. I will set aside that covenant of death if you will put your trust in this true foundation. If you will put your full life on that rock. And let your life be built as living stones into this glorious temple. Put your trust in Jesus. He is the only place where there is rest. He's the only place where there is hope. And that then I think pulls in what Isaiah was doing in the beginning. Who is your glory? What do you put your hope in? What do you honor? What do you magnify? What do you value? The thing that should be of the greatest value to us is our Lord Jesus. And we want to glorify Him and give Him all the praise and see Him as the treasure and make Him the foundation of our lives because we recognize that everything else in this life is a Nissan Xterra in comparison to the great Jesus. It is a mess. It is nothing. It is junk. It's trash. Jesus is the treasure. And that great foundation has been laid there so that I will turn away from the things of death and build my life directly upon Him. He is the message of grace. And may we never take Jesus and His words as simply blah, blah, blah. We've heard the story. We know the words. No big deal. The message of grace, the message of rest, The message of eternal life and the call of hope should never wear out on us. And we should desire to hear God's word every day in every way we can get our hands on it. Because it's the message of life. It is the message of hope. It is the thing that moves us out of death and brings us into life. And so I must put my life in his hands. I must put my hope on that foundation and give myself completely to him. Because when I trust in my wealth, when I trust in my job, when I trust in my possessions, when I trust in my family, when I trust in anything in this world, it lets me down. It is an emptiness. It is the covenant of death. True trust can only be found in Jesus and in Him alone. He is the foundation. Everything else is simply shaking, sifting sand. You pull your psalm books out.